the things that he's done for the church and what he's doing to continue to um, support the church in this age. And it is the church that will be the organization uh, that continues on into the next age and forevermore. Jesus didn't come to die for the church, not to let the church um, just fall apart by some measure, some means, and not continue. Jesus is continuing to support the church, and his support of the church will will be throughout eternity. He is Lord. He has power over everything, and that is what this last little tidbit is showing us. But this last tidbit, I'm glad you came this morning, because this may take two or three hours to get through, but I think you're going to see it's worth it, because this little last tidbit of chapter 1 uh, you know, we, we went to the exalted height in the first part of chapter 1, uh, that before the foundations of the world, God had made a plan, right? The covenant of redemption that he had made with the Son, and that he chose you for that redemption in the Son. Uh, and then we kind of dipped down through that happening in real time as we got to the middle sections of chapter 1, and as we saw that the Lord has sent the Holy Spirit to speak to us, uh, well, first he sent Jesus to die at a specific time for us some 2,000 years ago. And then at each one of our moments, he spent the Holy Spirit to teach us about the gospel. That's the important part. That's the point where we, our faces were turned from death, evil, death, and destruction. And our faces were turned towards him and to see eternity and see his goodness and see everything we've done. And then the chapter starts to go back up because Paul is praying. He's praying for these new believers. He said, I've seen your faith that you have in Jesus Christ, verse 15, and I see the love that you have for one another. And, of course, that's always the consequence of the gospel changing our hearts, that that faith and love uh, is emitted from us because now we're members of a new kingdom, not the kingdom of darkness, but the kingdom of light. And that's what God has done. We start to see everything then, and we're able to understand truth and see it from the perspective of God. And then he just keeps shooting right straight up to the great promises of the Lordship of Christ and our final deliverance and what the end of the age will look like and what it will be like for the church, that we will be the fullness of Christ and, he will be, uh, and, his, and we will be his fullness here in this place. So as we work our way through these last couple of verses this morning. We're going to see some more of that and see what the Lord has done for the church. And I hope that we see ourselves in that, in that God has planned for the church to be his work here in this place until he takes everything back and places everything under the feet of Jesus Christ. I want you to see that connected throughout the book of Ephesians because it's what we're going to study going forward. Let's begin reading this morning in verse 15, just to remind ourselves of these words. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul was so thankful for those first century believers and the work of the gospel among them. He said, I'm remembering you in my prayers, always in my prayers, Paul would say, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he's worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion, 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, I thank you for your grace, your mercy. Uh, Father, we know that the things around us are, are dying and falling apart, even our technology this morning, Father, but the hope we have and the eternal promises of the gospel that you've worked for us in your son Jesus. It surpasses all the evil of this world, it surpasses all the foolishness, all of the death, disease, and destruction. And in that midst of that, we are filled with your son Jesus, and we live a life of victory, even in a place of death. That's what we are. We come this morning and we're gathered out of this world, and we come together because we are the redeemed, those that you've chosen, the ones who can live in this world with great hope beyond this world. Help us to understand those things, Father. We, we sometimes get uh, discouraged by what we see around us. Help us to lift our eyes to see the fullness of Christ in everything. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to this last section this morning, I just want to remind you that it's the church, this glorious body of Jesus Christ, that he is saving you, beloved. You were created for God's glory. I'm not sure that many of you think of that often enough, of that glorious truth and the realization of that is how we get through this life, I believe. I know I don't. I'm guilty. I sometimes look around me and I get discouraged and I take a deep breath and go, I just can't do it anymore. Um, and I know each of you do that too. I look at my own shortcomings and wonder how God could even manage to bring glory from my meager attempt at this life. But he does. Have you ever done that? Have you ever felt like you're just not good enough? That God could somehow get glory from you and what he's doing through the church is an amazing fact this morning. That he could do those things. It was Robert Murray McShane that said, for every look at yourself, you need to take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. Because it's in looking at ourselves we get discouraged, right? Because we know we don't have the power. We know we don't have the grace. We don't, we don't have the, the ability to do the things that takes us through. It is in Christ's power, his ability. That's why Paul prayed for this young group of believers there at Ephesus. He wanted to know that as they turned away from their own uh, uh, abilities and their own strengths and turned to Christ, that they would understand that power and understand it more greatly and it would be revealed to them that the more weak they became, the stronger Christ became in their life. It's the dichotomy of, being, of living the Christian life. Not the less we try, but the less we rely on ourselves and more we rely on Christ and what he has done, the finished work of the cross at Calvary. And you know what? We live in an evil world, don't we? Mm. It's never more real than it is when we turn on the news. All you have to do is look at the headlines for a week and recount the deeds done, and you'll see the face of evil. It's right there on our TV screens. This week, I watched as Nicholas Cruz was sentenced for the February 14, 2018 Parkland, Florida shootings at Stoneman Douglas High School. It was eerie, the silence, as the judge read off the verdict of each murder of each one of those children in the first degree. 17 victims as I said, it was an eerie scene in the courtroom packed with the parents and family members of all those victims. 
seeking justice for their loved ones by listening to the judge read each one of the jury verdicts for each victim. She read, she chose to read the whole verdict for each victim. I think it took three or four minutes for each document to be read, times 17. It was palpable, the evil that had taken place that day. So too, and the coming election continually reminds us of the evil of those that want absolute legal authority to dismember babies in the womb. They're willing to stop at nothing to achieve this, their political ends, but that's not enough for evil for the state of Virginia legislator has introduced now legislation that will allow parents who don't affirm their child's gender identity to now be criminally prosecuted. They want to mutilate babies inside and outside the womb. Not only that evil takes advantage of the disadvantaged. Liz and I witnessed this time and time again through our fostering years. That is that the kids of single moms and broken homes and broken families it just sweeps them away into drugs, into sex trafficking, and all those things. It's a life of misery for them, but the evil seemingly just gobbles them up. It's just what Peter writes about, that evil roams around looking for those it can devour, and it has an insatiable appetite. And then you see all the lawlessness in our cities, the struggle to make ends meet in a world that increasingly doesn't make sense, I think, to many. And it all can quickly add up to hopelessness. Corey Ten Boom said, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. I think that's right. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at God, you'll be at rest. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at God, you'll be at rest. Amen, right? And that's what we're understanding, that uh, Christ is Lord. And though it seems hard to see that at times now in our place as we look at the world, he has complete authority, and the church is his body and his bride, and he will take care of his body and his bride. But people make themselves willing participants by selling away their souls to gain the world. When you sell your soul to gain the world, you have no you left to enjoy the game. When you sell your soul to gain the world, you have no you left to enjoy that game. I think that's uh, pertinent. Uh, Doug Wilson said that, but that's pertinent words. Whenever you sell your soul, you might have some fun here, but that will be your only fun. Scripture tells us that you have your reward and that your final reward will be such that the reward that you believe that you were receiving here was nothing. It is the dreaded they how many times do we catch ourselves saying, they should be ashamed of themselves? Why do they do that? Why do they always get away with that? They shouldn't do those things. Who do they think they're making a law? Who do they think they are making a law such as that, right? It's the evil that empowers they. Oh, by the way, there was this lady who pulled up into my driveway this past week. Not this, a week ago Wednesday, right, was when she came by. Her arms were waving and her horn was honking and my wife shot me a quick test because I was over here in my office and she said, there's this lady that pulled up in our driveway and her horn is honking and she's waving her arms and she's just out there in the driveway, what should I do? And I said, call the cops. But it turns out it was Darlene Kowal. She came to bring me an apple pie. I know she's watching this morning. 
And that reminds me of something else, by the way. <clears throat> I saw that again in this pie. Did you know that you could look at a pie closely enough? And if, if, it's in a, if, if it's in a glass dish, you can look through the bottom. And when you look through the bottom of a pie, I, you guys have done this, I'm sure. You hold that pie up and you look through the bottom of it. And if you look long enough, you'll see where the pie crust is soaked up with some kind of brown goo. It, see, you haven't done it, but you know what I'm talking about. Well, when, a, when the oven temperature reaches temperature for cooking that pie filling, there's no oven ever created that sets level, right? Because of the heat, the kind of the pie dish sets off to the side. You ladies know this. And all your, all your pie stuff kind of goes to one side. Well, guess what? That's also where all the sugar goes. That's the sweetest part. So when you got a guy like me holding up the pie, looking at it, he's wanting to start eating the sweetest piece first. I know, where's, he, where's the preacher going with this, right? No wonder the screens are not working this morning. I, my wife thinks I think too much sometimes too, but that's the engineer in me. That's my background. It's true, trust me. Next pie you get, take a look at it. Even if you'll just look at it by looking at the top of it, you can kind of sense that because that's where all the sugar and that's where all the good stuff goes from the pie feeling. But don't think me schizophrenic to talk about the sheer depravity of evil in one breath and then turn turn to talk about the unmitigated blitz I have when I find the sweet spot in an apple pie. I'm not crazy. I merely live in a world that I understand that evil is already defeated. I said it this week on Twitter. The head of the serpent has been crushed under the Savior. And we have victory this morning, and nobody will ever take that victory away from him. So I can enjoy my doggone apple pie in the midst of this evil world and this evil and sick generation. And you can live lives just like that. That's what Christ promises. Jesus puts joy in everyday life because he has defeated all evil. He is above all authority and dominion and power and above every name that is named. Amen? And nobody will take that from him. Jesus is the highest authority, as we said last week. You see it there in verse 21, if you have your scriptures with you this morning. You know I like to use the scriptures, and we bounce around a little bit. You see, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, above every name that is named. That is, all of these terms are synonymously used of the authorities and rulers, usually of spiritually dark places. And this is one of the things us theological nerds argue about. Jesus has authority over all powers and authorities and rulers in every place, but it's the one we want him to have authority over, the rulers and authorities and powers and kingdoms of the dark places. It's the bad angels that we're worried about. It's the bad angels that cause all the evil in the world. It's those ones who were thrown down with Satan that are in this world wreaking havoc and those that don't care about the things of God. They allow themselves to be persuaded by this evil. It is a part of their heart, a part of sin, and Christ has power over all of them. Not only is he the highest authority then, I mean because his authority uh, uh, assumes and consumes all others, Christ is the highest and final authority even of the good angels, but we don't worry about them because their allegiance is already sworn to him. It is the evil minions of hell that empower people who crave power, who are easy marks. They are they, we spoke of the theys earlier, that should not do what they do because they know it's not right, but they do it anyway. They sell their soul to evil to gain the world, to gain the world's applause and to gain the world's powers. We see them all around us. We say, why do they do that? That's not good. Why do they do things that are not good? That's why. 
because whether you want to see this or not, beloved, there's a spiritual warfare going on all around us. Uh, Brother Barry brought that up this morning from Ephesians 6, another part of this book. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, right, against powers and authorities in dark places. Jesus has already defeated all that. Not only is he the highest authority, but you'll see it there in the end of verse 21. As we read all of 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So he is the final authority because Christ is all those things now. The crown is upon his brow, but also in the time to come throughout eternity, he will continue to be that authority, which is above all. This is why I can go on finding the sweet spot in my pie because the bitter is put away in Christ. Christ is not only the highest authority, beloved, but he is the final authority for God. He has put all things under Christ's feet. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Just if you're following along in your scriptures, just turn backwards just a few verses or a few pages. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. The Bible tells us that all things are put under the feet of Christ in several different places. This is perhaps one of the greatest places to read this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, beginning there in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or have died. Verse 21, for as by man came death, but by man has came also the resurrection from the dead. He's talking about the first Adam and his sin, and the second Adam, Christ, has resurrected, right? Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits of this. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Christ's feet. That's total victory, beloved. As I said in Genesis 3, we know that the head of the serpent has been crushed by the heel of the Savior. His head is crushed. Hebrews 2 He has defeated death by death, and he's defeated the one who has the power of death, and he has delivered those who were enslaved by death to freedom. That's us, beloved. His beloved church, the ones he's redeeming, we were the ones enslaved by death, and we've been delivered. And he gave him his head. You go back to Ephesians 1, verse 22. Do you see that? He has gave him, God has gave Christ as head to the church. God gave as such to the church. He was head of everything, but God gave Christ to the church as head of everything to show that the one who has preeminence in everything is foremost the head of the church. And he mediates all of the sustaining of his bride, the saints, the church, his body, his beloved bride. The head of the church is also head of the universe, and his is the power to deliver those who was given to him by the Father. The church is the body of the head. Look at that, verse 22 and verse 23. And he put all things under 
his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And the church is the body to the one who is the head and to the one who is the head over all things. Now, beloved, here is something that we could spend some time in this morning. The scriptures continually give us these metaphors. It calls the church a building, a branch, and a bride. We are the building, as it will see in chapter 2, that Christ is the cornerstone. We are the branch, right, to the vine. We're to uh, continually be connected to the vine and divide all of our sustenance from the vine as the branch so we can produce fruit. But we are also the bride of Christ, as we'll see in Ephesians chapter 5. He is the head. He is our groomsman. All of these beautiful illustrations help us to understand how important the church is to the bride or to the groom, how important the bride is to the groom, how important the church is to the body or to the head, the body to the head. Even I'm getting my metaphors mixed up this morning. Think about this just for a minute. He has given us the head of the universe as the head of the church. It's connected in a radical unity. If you just stop and think about uh, the physiological aspect of this, the, uh, the understanding of a body and a head connected. In other words, the body does everything that the head requires. Do you see that? We have a radical unity just as the fingers are a part of my hand we are a part of that body, and each one of us working together intimately to make the whole. Paul goes into much more depth in 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to spend some time this evening at Evening Church talking more about this. But I am a part of that whole just as you are part of that whole, and we each have a position to play as part of the body connected to the head. But it is the head that contains the nervous system, the control of all the nervous system that makes my fingers do that, Right? My fingers can do that and I can do it simultaneously because my body, physical body, is connected to my head and the head controls the working of the body. So too, with Christ, the controlling of the body of the bride, his church, the head over all of the universe is head over the church and he's controlling and caring for us and creating that radical unity. When we're connected to the head, We have that unity. When we go out on our own, the unity becomes corrupted to some extent. Not that it can be completely corrupted because the head is perfect. But you understand what I'm saying. It's the same thing Corey Tinboom said. It's the same thing uh, Wilson said. It's the same thing McShane said, that when we focus on just the body and how it works in the world, that's when our body becomes... (laughs) Uh, less useful, so to speak. But when we focus on what the head is doing, that's when we have the perfect complement. Connected to the head, we read about these things. We understand his perfect will together, even though we're separate. Uh, One of the most amazing things that I've ever witnessed is how the church in India complements and does and loves Jesus just like the church in Pennsville, New Jersey does. When I'm standing on that soil so far away from home and I feel so disconnected from everything that I've ever known, I come to one of their churches on a Sunday morning over there and I'm back at home instantly among people who love me, people who understand and love the same God, people connected by that same radical unity, the work of the head in us. I see that as we preach it through Nehemiah. And the working of the people coming together to build the wall because the head had sent the, sent the instructions, right? 
each person come and they did their own part and they, they collectively moved together as a whole and the body completed the work that the head required it to do. We're connected to believers of all time by the leadership and working of the heads. And it's a completion of the body, a complement of the body, all the parts working together of the body in unison. And when we do that, the church is the fullness of Christ in this world. He who fills us calls us to fill the world with him. Christ fills all things. That's what this passage is saying, is that Christ is, is, is above all things. He is the highest authority. He is the finest final authority. And as we picked up from Colossians last week, he has created all things and he sustains all things and all things exist for his glory. He fills all things. We are connected to his grace. John talks about this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. He fills us with his grace and truth as only the Son from the Father could. But he's connected us to the Father as well. If we go just a bit further in John, it's his fullness, his, his righteousness, his work. I'll go more here. Just let me read. For, hit, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. In other words, Jesus come in. This is where we get the word exegete too from this passage in verse 18. Jesus is exegeting as we open up the scriptures and lay them open for you to see this morning. Jesus is doing that same exegetical work and laying open who God is. It is through seeing Jesus in his life and through reading the gospels and reading scriptures, we know that God's mercy is like Jesus's mercy. God's love is Jesus's love. God's forgiveness is Jesus. God's justice, we see it on the cross as the blood flowed from the Son, God requiring justice. He connects us to the Father in that way. And he came, and from his fullness we all benefit. He fills the church. The church is the fullness of Christ, and from his fullness, his righteousness, his perfect life, and his mediating work in this world today, his upholding the head, upholding the body, the groomsman taking care of his bride, we all receive from that <laughs> eternal life. We can live in this world. I'll go back to the pie here in a minute. We can live, we can eat the sweet spot amidst all the less sweet, let's just say. That's a simple analogy this morning, isn't it? Simple analogy. In some ways, we're going to get off into theology. I may speak more of this tonight. The church in its mystical union with Christ fills Christ. John Calvin said, uh, by this word fullness, play Roma in the Greek. It's a interesting. I could speak for several more hours just about it here as, as Paul uses it, but it wouldn't add anything to us this morning. But this is what Calvin's bringing out, and I just I can't help myself. I've got to say a word about it. Calvin says this, by, the, by this word, word, word's fullness, this fills, this play Roma in the Greek, it's translated fullness or fills here. By this word fullness, he means that our Lord Jesus Christ, even God, the Father, account themselves imperfect unless we are joined to them. It's like a father should say, my house seems empty because my children are not here, or a man not feel fully complete because his 
wife is not home. It's not that Christ is less perfect or that he is not perfect on his own. I think it's such that Calvin was teaching us that it is such an assurance on the part and work of Jesus Christ and God in this world as we see it from his perspective and not ours looking up. Because when we look up, we miss some of it. We need to read scripture to backfill that God has planned this before the foundation of the world. And it comes down to us and it's going to happen assuredly. Nothing's going to interrupt his plan. Verses 9 and 10 there. He's bringing all things together. He's redeeming all things in Christ. He's reconciling all things in Christ. And that process is not going to stop. So Calvin is picking up on that and he's saying, listen, it's as if Christ is not complete until his full bride or body is called in. And I see it that way as well. Again, it's not that Christ is imperfect, but that he died for you and his work is not complete until that, until you are brought into the body of Christ. You see it? He loves you so much. That plan so includes you. You are a part of the body. So there's a bit of the mystical union there where we feel Christ. That is that the head, the bridegroom, completes, has found himself complete in the body and the bride. Not that Christ is incomplete in any manner, for his fullness and sovereignty beg the understanding that the body bride will be completed. And here, where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning, the church is the fullness of Christ in this place. As Christ fills us, he has left us here to fill this world. And here is a great truth that I want to take from this passage this morning and make it into our application for here in Pennsville. Indeed, all of South Jersey, indeed the world, it is true of all of our Ivy League schools and many of the research hospitals that we enjoy all across this nation were first ministries of Christian churches. It is also true that church involvement with our government, if it was absent tomorrow, our government would descend into chaos. It is also true that if the church involvement with our government schools was ended tomorrow, that they would probably do the same. The church, filled with the salvation, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness of Christ, still gives and does more for charity and medical missions and homeless sheltering and food banking and disaster rescue and rebuilding after hurricanes, whatever, than all of the world's governments combined. It's the church, beloved. God's common grace to the lost here on this earth is the church, and the church is you. We are his body, loving people that the head commands us that we love, teaching people, giving Showing mercy, compassion, forgiveness towards those. The scripture is complete. That said, Christ is why our filling is so sweet. <laughs> he is the reason we love. He is the reason we share. He's the reason we give, go, sacrifice, build, reach out, do without so others can have. He's the reason to show the love he has for us to others. We receive, we give. We received the greatest gift in him, the love and forgiveness that he has offered and life that comes from that, and we want to live that out in this place for his glory. The scripture sets forth these metaphors of the church for this reason, the bride of Christ, the building of Christ, the body of Christ, the branch of Christ, because when we're connected to him, we can bear the fruit and do the work he's called us to do. What is the great reason that we do this? For flourishing, beloved, human flourishing. 
When the church rightly understands their nature as the bride, as the building and the body of Christ, as the branch of Christ, as I throw my alliterations around here this morning, we flourish, you flourish, the community around us can flourish because common grace falls on them as we love them and serve them. And they see Jesus in us. And they want that. Because in the midst of the evil and death and destruction in this world, in the midst of the hopelessness, that is too often this life, the church can exhibit love, life, hope, mercy, and compassion. Through Christ, the second Adam, who conquered death by his righteous living, we have power over sin. And we can have healing for the wrong and hope for tomorrow. We can reverse the curse, so to speak. It's the mandate. Have you ever read it? Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Keep your fingers in Ephesians. We're going to get back there. We've only got about an hour to go. Don't laugh. I'm talking to you. Ephesians or Genesis chapter 1. I think we forget this sometimes. We get involved in the evil. We get involved in our lives. We get the old woe is me thing going, and we forget what good God wants for us. The mission that he set us on. The mandate, right? This is the cultural mandate that he gave Adam and even that he gave to man. Begin in verse 26, chapter 1 of the book of Genesis. This is the very foundations. You know, uh, I'll just add a little more time here this morning, but we talked last week about atheists, how they disconnect from a worldview that includes God. Well, right here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If your worldview doesn't include that, Man, you're headed in the wrong direction. Because it, it, if it gets off there of understanding who God is and creation and who he is and all of his sovereignty and that he has created all of the earth and everything that exists so that we can see who he is, and not only so we can see who he is, beloved, but so that we can enjoy and have dominion over that as we're going to learn so that it is for, for man, it's for us. <clears throat> Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I'm just going to kind of breeze by that, but we're made in the image of God. There's something very specific there that we are made in the image of God. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon this earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. Keep going. Don't, don't stop there. i got a page. Verse 28, and God blessed them. This blessing's still for today. We get it back in Christ because he's our fullness. He, he died so that I could have this. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fishes of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves. That's the cultural mandate, beloved. That is what God made us for, to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion. And what took that away? Just one chapter over, you'll see Genesis 3. It's the fall. It's the Garden of Eden where Satan came and he tempted Adam and Eve, and they partook of the fruit. They broke God's command because they believed that God didn't have everything, did God really say that we couldn't eat of that one tree? Wow, that one tree. Boy, that's really selfish of him not to let me eat of that one tree. 
Well, I know he's supplied everything else that I've needed. This is the que- this is a conversation that should have went on in the garden. I know he's given us everything. We don't have to we just all the work that we do is just for enjoyment. But I gotta have that one tree. <laughs> That's who we are, beloved. That's who we are. Sin came into the world and that destroyed human flourishing. Ephesians two, if you're back to Ephesians, because I promised we'd be back. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, just read those words. And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins. In which you once walked. Do you think sin's not something? Look into our world and remind yourself of the evil that we talked about when we started. If you think sin's not something, look into your own heart. Look at the power that sin has over you before you knew Christ and how you walked into it. This, this dead man can't do anything. We were all dead men and women before Christ saved us. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you want. This is why you need a savior because you're dead and you do dead works, right? Then you have Christ come into your life and he saves you. Following, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Paul's really going to change gears. When we go out of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, we're going to see how dead we were and how gracious God was. But it's in the gracious work of God on the cross of Christ that we can have life that we can go back to the human flourishing of Genesis 1.28. God's going to get all the glory for this because he has a king, there is a kingdom, and we can be restored because God who is rich in mercy, right? We see that in Ephesians 2. The bride needs a groomsman. The building needs a cornerstone. The branch needs a vine. The body needs a head. That head, that cornerstone... That groomsman didn't want to be without his body, his bride, his building, his branch. And though sin wasn't his responsibility, he took on sin because of his love for you, his bride, his body, his building so that you could have human flourishing. Beloved, I've said this to the young men time and time again. Responsibility flows to those who take authority. Christ Jesus has the authority he has because he took on the responsibility of the sin of the world. Dying on behalf of those who will believe and have faith and be washed in his blood to live in this place to flourish. And I just take a moment here to show you some of this in Ephesians. It happened there in Ephesians 1.7. God tells us this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. See it again in 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of our precious Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 19. Chapter 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 6 of chapter 3, this is a mystery, Paul says, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then verses 18 through 20 in that same chapter 3, let's go back just a little bit. This is all to the riches of his glory. If we go back to verse 14, 
Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We are redeemed to glorify God, to live in the midst of the ruins of this world and be a city on a hill, a light that shines to show the hope, the love, the mercy, to flourish for his glory. Back to Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, beforehand that we should walk in them. Now the 10th verse of chapter 3. This is what God is doing in the church. The reason why he's filled us with his Christ is so that we can fill this world. But there's a greater reason. This verse 10, I can't wait to get to this chapter in this book. So that through the church, that is through our lives and the way we live them here, much in victory over all the evil, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known now to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Peter says they're in awe of what God is doing. This is an amazing thing. Go to chapter 4, verse 12. He's maturing us to be more like Christ, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's what he wants to do. He wants to build you up. Remember Paul's prayer? That we would continue to see and receive the wisdom and the revelation of God. Right? These things are not disconnected. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the evil waves in this world. I added the word evil. And carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the what? The head. Into Christ from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint which with when it's equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Jump over to chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Get with me, man. Right? There's the metaphor of the bride and the groomsman. We know how hard that is as men, right? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. So that he might present the church to himself. This is speaking of Christ. At the same breath, it's speaking of Christ and his bride, the church, as it is husband and his bride here in this place. But the greater picture here is Christ washing us clean with his word so that he could present us to himself. In splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Flourishing, beloved. In community with one another, loving, forgiving, nourishing, raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. All of this is to honor God. To grow to be godly men, to grow to have godly marriages, raise godly children, and to grow into godly communities that flourish as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the fullness of Christ. Do you know where this begins? It begins with you, beloved. 
It begins with your faith, your walk with Jesus. It begins with you putting away of your sin, the sin in your life, and begins with you loving others. It begins with repentance, beloved. Maybe you've sinned some great sin. Maybe it's abortion. Maybe it's divorce that's just beating your heart up and your mind. Maybe it's a sin that no one knows about. Whatever it is, maybe you're a bad parent, a bad husband, a bad wife. You failed. Guess what? We've all failed. God knows your sin. Christ died to set you free from your sin. So your life begins with repentance and turning to the Lord. Sin you commit or sin committed against you needs forgiveness. Forgiveness from the Lord and from you. And it leads you to human flourishing. Remember last week we talked about what self-governance, family governance, church governance, community, nation. Christ defeated death and the devil. And you can be free. I cannot decide these things for you. I wish I could because I know what choice I'd make for you. I wish I could just in one sermon express everything just perfectly in words so that you would relent and follow Christ with your whole life today. So that you would know all that he's done for you, how free your life can be, how sweet it can be. But here we are in the word of God and understanding the sovereign rule of Christ and his perfect headship over the church, his love, his forgiveness, his lordship. I cannot bow for you. Christ is Lord. He is Lord no matter whether you will make and decide and see him as Lord or not. You will either face his sovereignty here and forgiveness and the, the painful part of you bringing your sins before him and asking him of forgiveness or you will stand before him one day in judgment and it'll be too late. Eternity's a long time. And scripture plainly tells us that if you decide to pay for your own sins and not the blood of Christ paying for them, that eternity is not long enough for you to pay the full price. Friends, I pray this day is the day that you relent and give life, give your life, total life, to Jesus Christ. This ruler of the universe is head of the church, and he is washing her white as snow. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to a close today. There's power on high. Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the throne, to the right hand of majesty on high, where he intercedes for his beloved body, his beloved branch, his beloved bride. At this very moment, receiving the worship through the power of the Holy Spirit and the reconciliation he's made in his blood, this very moment, hears our praises, knows our hearts, and is interceding on our behalf that would we receive these truths. Father, work powerfully in the hearts of your people this day and only the way that you can through the Holy Spirit's work in your word. Save them, sanctify them, wash them clean, bring them into the body, connect them to the vine, build upon them, build them upon the cornerstone. Oh, beloved Father, what great pictures this all presents to us of Christ, the one who has all authority being given to us, the church, as that head, and then interceding on our behalf, not only to fill us, but to, so that we can fill this world. Father, what a glorious picture this presents as we unload the rest of this in Ephesians. I can't wait to get to these truths, to hear of your goodness and your love that you have for us. Go with us this day, Father, in Jesus' name.
we pray. Amen. All right. Is it working?